thank you very much to Ash for leading the service so far. Uh, we're going to spend um, a few minutes together thinking about one of the Psalms in the Bible, one of the songs, uh, Psalm 127. Uh, and if you have a Bible, it would be helpful if you could have that open in front of you as we think about it together, whether in a paper copy or on a phone or device. That'd be very helpful indeed. I'm just going to read Psalm 127 for us now. Let's read it together. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives sleep to his beloved. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And before we think about that for a few minutes together, let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who speaks and that your word, your revelation of yourself is powerful and is active. And so we pray now that you would please help each one of us over the course of the coming few minutes to hear you clearly and to respond as you would have us respond. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if anyone here has ever heard of Wonderland Amusement Park just outside Beijing in China. It was billed as being China's answer to Disneyland. It was intended to be the biggest theme park in East Asia. But around 25 years ago, whilst it was still being constructed, money problems led to the project being abandoned. And what was intended to be a child's dreamland turned into a bit of a nightmare, with half-built fantasy castles and roller coaster tracks leading to nowhere, and perhaps the creepiest and most dystopian looking of all, a big sign over the entrance to Wonderland Amusement Park that said, enter at your own risk. And ultimately, despite all of the planning and the work invested in the park, well, the whole place was completely flattened a few years ago. And you can imagine that for the builders and for the planners and the developers involved, well, it was a bit of a surprise to see all of that work come to nothing. Because we all want our labours to count for something, don't we? And in fact, we often expect that they will. As long as we plan carefully and we work diligently, and as long as we have the skill set for the job at hand... Well, then the outcome of our work, whether that work is building an amusement park or the tasks and projects that we spend our days on, well, it can feel pretty secure. And yet, according to the author of Psalm 127, that presupposition is faulty. Because, says the psalmist, we, human beings, are limited creatures. 
so limited, in fact, that on our own, well, we've no right to expect our labours to end up any differently than those who built Wonderland Amusement Park. We're now a few weeks into a Sunday evening series in the Psalms of Ascent. That's the name given to this collection of Psalms that fall between Psalm 120 and 134. And they're called the Psalms of Ascent. We've thought about each week because they were sung by people as they were on an upward journey, on an ascent. God's people on their way up to Jerusalem, most likely for three big annual festivals. And we've seen over the past few weeks that that journey mirrors the pattern of the Christian life. That as people who follow Jesus, we too are pilgrims, not towards an earthly city like Jerusalem, but traveling through life towards a new Jerusalem, a glorious and remade world. And yet we've also seen that that journey itself is full of dangers to pilgrims on the road. So, so far we've been warned of the danger of opposition in Psalms 120 and 123. We've been warned of the danger of potential compromise in Psalm 125. And this evening, we're going to be asked to reckon with the danger of self-reliance in Psalm 127. And we'll see that under our first heading this evening. Next um, slide, please. Thank you. Uh, Creature, know your limits, verses 1 and 2. Now, we're introduced to three different kinds of worker in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 127. And the first kind of worker we meet is at home on a construction site. They are, verse 1, builders. And from the little that we're told about them, we can infer that this kind of worker isn't half-hearted in their efforts, at least as far as we can tell. They are, verse 1, those who labor. And yet, work as they might... Just like the builders of Wonderland Amusement Park, their labours are at risk of ultimately amounting to the grand total of nothing. Why? Verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. See, without the Lord's activity, God's activity in this construction project, the builder's activity... Well, it will ultimately lead to nothing. And the psalmist then takes us in verse 1 from a building site to a city wall. I wonder if you noticed that. Now, I have a close friend who's been in the police force for quite a number of years. And one of the first jobs he had after becoming a police officer was being part of the security detail for the G8 conference that was hosted at Glen Eagles in 2005. Some of you might remember that conference happening. And in normal circumstances, that task would have been a big enough deal for a newly minted copper. But these weren't normal circumstances. Because the dates of that conference were the 6th to the 8th of July, 2005. And right in the middle of those dates, on the 7th of July, 2005, some of you might remember, there were multiple terrorist attacks in London, the 7-7 bombings as they're now referred to. And so the already tight security around that site at Glen Eagles, well, was tightened even further. And if he hadn't been before, which he was, well, when my friend was on duty, he was on absolute high alert. And yet, no matter how well he paid attention to what was going on around him, 
Well, the shock, the surprise, and the scale of the attacks that had happened in London had left all of the security groups feeling really anxious. They were acutely aware of their own limitations. It was unclear whether they could do anything that would would be enough to stop that kind of surprise attack from happening to them and the people they were watching over. And in Psalm 127, the psalmist has that kind of dynamic in mind, the dynamic of an alert but ultimately limited security detail. See, in the second half of verse 1, we're introduced to a night watchman at a city gate. And in the ancient world, a night watchman wasn't like we might envisage today, a security guard at a museum or on a building site with a great big mag light in their hand, there to keep their eyes open for trespassers. No, a night watchman was looking out for potential invaders, enemy troops making a move on their city. And so the effectiveness of a night watchman's work was the difference between a city being ransacked and not. And yet, just like my friend the police officer says to Samist, the night watchman might well stay awake as he watches over the city, but on his own, his labors might still count for nothing. Verse 1, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And I wonder if you can see the point being made by both of those illustrations in verse 1. The point that without God's overruling and his overseeing, well, that all human work ultimately counts for nothing. Now that isn't how we might otherwise tend to think, is it? In the job I did before I became a pastor, we were encouraged by our employer to sign up to the the social media networking site LinkedIn. Some of you might be on there too. And I remember someone once sharing a quote on LinkedIn that said this, your only limit is the one you set yourself. Your only limit is the one you set yourself. Now, some of us might cringe at that. I'll be honest and say that that kind of quote has always made my skin feel a bit itchy and was, in fact, one of the main reasons I hadn't been on LinkedIn before. I was told to go on it by my employer. But it does reflect how we're conditioned to think about work in our culture very often. The only limits on my productivity, on on my output, on my achievement, well, they're determined by me. But you see, verse 1 kind of bursts that bubble a bit, doesn't it? Whether people acknowledge God or not, the skill or the commitment with which they work will not ultimately determine whether they achieve what they set out to achieve or not. See, if the God of the Bible doesn't enable it, then it will come to nothing. And the very fact that it ever does come to something is only because of his gracious involvement. And you see, that's a humbling idea, isn't it? It's a humbling thing to be reminded that as creatures we are limited. And if we aren't quite convinced of our own limitation by those illustrations in verse 1, well, our introduction to a third kind of worker in verse 2 might do the trick. Now, since the 1970s, there's been a growing problem in the country of Japan with a culture of overworking. And it is a very real problem in that country. Each year, hundreds of people are recorded as having died as a result of overwork. 
And there's even a word that's specifically used to describe death, attributed to overwork in Japanese. That word is karoshi. And whilst we might not have quite that same culture, at least not as widespread as that in the UK, well, the impulse to burn the candle at both ends isn't all that unusual at all. Again, in the industry in which I used to work, some of the larger firms had beds in their offices so that people didn't need to go to the bother of going home at night when things were particularly busy. And it seems that nothing is new under the sun. Verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. The psalmist is addressing someone who's burning the candle at both ends, getting up at the crack of dawn to start working and working until the wee small hours. And notice the worker isn't working those long hours because he or she really enjoys the work or finds them satisfying. The psalmist says that at the end of the day, they eat the bread of anxious toil. Their work is an anxious kind of work all the time. And yet, just like the first two workers we met in verse 1, even this kind of work, says the psalmist, the kind of work that burns the candle at both ends, is ultimately in vain. And yet the reason that that kind of work is in vain might leave us scratching our heads a bit, at least at first glance. Just read again with me verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Now what does sleep have to do with anything? And how does sleep solve the problem of being a chronic overworker? Well, I think the psalmist mentions sleep in order to highlight yet another of our limitations as creatures. See, we read in the Bible that God created human beings to work, that work is a good thing. But he also created us to need to rest. And in fact, we're told that rest is a good gift from the creator God to his creatures. And so you see, this third kind of worker is yet another humbling reminder that as people... We are limited by far more than the limits we set for ourselves. We're limited, verse 1, by the fact that without God's enabling, all of our work would ultimately come to nothing. And we're limited, verse 2, by our own weakness. Not a limitation we set for ourselves, but one that is wired into us as fragile creatures. And I just wonder if you're convinced of that yet. Of your ultimate limitations of your need of God's involvement in the day-to-day grind of work in order to achieve anything or of your need to rest the rest isn't something to battle against in the search for ever-increasing productivity but it's part of how you were made it's a good gift from God because if you aren't convinced of your own limitations yet As uh, we read on in Psalm 127, it might look as though the psalmist has missed his chance to persuade us. Because he seems to move on to a completely different subject in verses 3 to 5, doesn't he? Just read verse 3 with me again. Children, says the psalmist, are a heritage from the Lord. By which we might take him to mean children are a wonderful gift from God. So we should be thankful to God for them. And as a standalone idea, that is absolutely true. 
But actually, I'm not entirely sure that gratitude is the final response the psalmist is aiming at in verses 3 to 5. No, I think in the context of the psalm, the response he's aiming for is dependence. Let me explain that under our second point, creature. Consider the proof of your limits, verses 3 to 5. Now, in verses 3 to 5, the psalmist does highlight the blessings that having children might bring to someone. Just look again at verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with children. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There is a sense of security. That's what the psalmist is envisaging. Security that one might find in having a clutch of grown-up children around them. But the benefits of having children, I don't think, are his main point. The main point are where those benefits ultimately come from. Just remember verses 1 and 2, where human limitation has been the big idea. And as we arrive at verse 3, we're in the same kind of territory. And he highlights that with that first word. Behold. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Notice where they come from. That heritage is from the Lord. The emphasis there is on the fact that children and the blessings that they might bring come from God. Now, I'm aware that even speaking about children in a, in a, a living church family, any living church family can be an acutely painful thing for many people. People who would love to have children, but who can't for any number of reasons. And even as we rejoice with Peter and Hannah today over the arrival of Ezra Jacob, well, we also mourn with those who mourn over the pain of childlessness. Because having children doesn't just happen for everyone. And you see, I think that is kind of the psalmist's point. See, human activity is involved in procreation. But the determining factor in whether someone can have a child or not isn't whether they're morally good or whether they work hard or whether they'd make an especially good parent even. It's ultimately God's doing. And so you see verses 3 and 5 are almost like an illustration of that big idea of verses 1 and 2. It's as if the psalmist is saying, if you still don't believe me that you're a limited creature, we'll consider the blessing of children. And more than that, consider where that blessing ultimately comes from. Not from you, but from God. Now, if that is the big idea of Psalm 127, which I think it is, if the whole thing is an expose of just quite how limited we are as human beings, but what difference does that kind of knowledge make to you and me in real life? Well, I think it affects us in a couple of different ways. The first of which is quite general, but it is nonetheless pretty profound. It's a simple reminder that we, human beings, are creatures. Limited and dependent creatures. And that God, the God of the Bible, is not. Now, I'm conscious that for some of us here, that might actually be a bit of a new thought for you this evening. Perhaps you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian, and you've never really interrogated the fact that you are limited. Despite the fact that the world around you and that your own life 
is chock full of indicators that you are. The fact that you can't work every hour of every day, of every week, of every year, for example. You need to sleep, don't you? And that awful trend of Karoshi in Japanese culture highlights that in a really tragic way. Or another example, that of children. Even with modern medical advancement, there is an extent to which whether we can or can't have children will ultimately be out with our hands. You are a limited creature, as am I. And the God of the Bible is not. He is the creator, the sustainer, the giver of good gifts. And you see, the conflation of those two roles of the creator and the creature gets us into all kinds of problems. The psalmist would have us see things as they really are, have us see ourselves as we really are. But you see, seeing things as they really are also makes the message of the Christian faith all the more extraordinary. And that's brought into even sharper focus as we've taken communion together tonight. Because the message of the Christian faith is that that infinite God stepped into the world in which we live. That in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal God submitted himself even to death. All in order to rescue creatures, limited human beings like you and I, for eternity. It's an extraordinary thing. And if you've never pondered that before, pondered your own limits and your own dependence before, let me please encourage you to do so this evening. And even for those of us who would consider ourselves to be Christians, this general point might still be a helpful corrective for each one of us. That as we go into work, into the office tomorrow, well, we neither have rights to be cocky, thinking we can achieve anything in our own strength, nor to be crushed, thinking that we have to do everything in our own strength. Instead, we're pushed towards humble dependence on God day by day, aren't we? Humble because my skill and commitment isn't the only factor in determining what I'll achieve each day. And dependent because I am limited. He is ultimately the one who brings blessing. Practically, what difference might that make? Well, that kind of humility might mean that on your way into the office, very simply, you might pray for God's help as you work. Recognizing his need, his, his help as you work. And that kind of dependence might mean that at the end of the working day, well, you find it just a little bit easier to draw stumps on your work. Trust in the fact that you are limited. And the fact that you're limited and you need to rest doesn't come as a surprise to God. It's how he made you. Rest is a good gift from God. So that's one way in which this psalm cashes out, I think. It does apply in a general sense to each of us, a push towards humble dependence on God day by day, because we are limited creatures and he is not. And yet there is another line of application, a more specific line of application, but a really legitimate one, I think. And it's a line of application to work and to a very particular kind of work. And to see that, just notice the heading at the top of the psalm that we might quite quickly gloss over as you read the rest of the psalm itself. The heading is actually part of the original text. We read it, a song of ascents of Solomon. Now, if you don't know, Solomon was the son of King David. And during his reign as king over God's people, 
David made an offer to God. He offered God to build God a house, a temple where God would dwell among his people. Now, God refused that offer and instead made a promise to David. And I just want you to listen to that promise for a moment from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is God speaking to David. He says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, Solomon, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He, that Solomon, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, God promises David that his son Solomon will be a house builder. We'll build a very specific house, a house for God to dwell in, a temple in which God would dwell among his people. As we read on through the Bible, we find that Solomon did just that. What difference does any of that make to us? Well, it means that the kind of house building that the psalmist has in mind in Psalm 127 isn't just the kind that Stuart Milne or Barrett Holmes might be interested in. It isn't just work in a general sense, although it is that too, I think. No, I think it's also this specific kind of house building, temple building. And that does make a profound difference to how we might apply this psalm to ourselves. Because as God's people at this point in salvation history, we might, we might not be invested in building a physical bricks and mortar house anymore for God to live in. But as we've thought about in our studies in Haggai a few weeks ago on Sunday mornings, in First Peter, Peter tells Christians that they are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Or in other words, that house, that temple, well, is a church now. That as a collection of Christians, we are a spiritual house and as Christians today, says Peter, we're involved in building that house, either by strengthening it, by helping each other to mature as Christians, or by growing it, telling other people the good news of Jesus, so that they become living stones too. And when we apply Psalm 127 through that grid, well, it comes into pretty sharp focus, doesn't it? Verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor it, in vain, or in other words, without God and his involvement at every step of the way of this kind of house building, of building a church, then we're wasting our time. We're building in vain. And there are loads of implications of that, I think, but let me just highlight two. I've been here at Hebron for about 10 or 11 weeks now, I think, and you might have noticed that I've got a bit of a tick a habit whenever I come up to preach. I'm sure I've got actually quite a number, some of which might be more or less annoying than others. But there's one that I know I've repeated every Sunday. And it's that every time I get up to speak, I ask you to have the Bible open in front of you, whether in a paper or an electronic form. Annoying though that might be, there is a reason I do it. It isn't just because it keeps everyone alert, making you kind of jump around a text. It's because the Bible is God's word. The Bible is God speaking. And the Bible is a fundamental way by which God does his work among his people. 
And so every time we gather together to be built up as living stones, well, what I really want is for you to be testing whether what I'm saying is really from him or whether it's just my musings on the world. Now, whether the preaching here remains faithful to the Bible or not won't necessarily determine whether there's numerical growth in this church family. It might, but it doesn't necessarily work in that way. And yet the message of Psalm 127 is that unless the Lord is the one who's building his house, this house here at Hebron, doing his work, then that labor is ultimately in vain. And so we build on what he's told us to build on, on his word, and not on our own. That's the first way in which this might cash out for us. And there is a second way in which we might apply this house-building principle to ourselves. The story is told of the preacher Charles Spurgeon, which I've read being cited by a few different authors. It might be apocryphal, but it is a good story, so I'm going to tell it anyway. Bear in mind that it might be apocryphal, though. Spurgeon, if you don't know, had a significant impact as a Christian preacher in the 19th century in London. And so a group of young ministers came to visit him one day and to see the church in which he preached. It was a church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And after showing them the main auditorium, which I think seated something like 5,000 people on a Sunday, Spurgeon showed, uh, offered to show them the church's boiler room. The ministers weren't all that keen to see the heating system of the church in action, but Spurgeon insisted. And so he led them down to the basement of the building. And there they didn't find a combi boiler if those existed in the 19th century. No, they found a room set out as if for another meeting, a meeting of, of lots of people. And, and Spurgeon explained to them that this wasn't an overflow room from the main auditorium when it got too busy on a Sunday morning. No, it was a room where a separate meeting took place during the main service, a prayer meeting. This is the boiler room of the church, he said, where everything is rooted, everything is driven from here. What might it look like for the Lord to be the builder of this house, of Hebron? It might look like humbly, dependently, relying on him in prayer. Now we can do, each, uh, do that, each of us, personally. We've been thinking in our morning series in Mark about the call to share Jesus' preaching priority, haven't we? That we'd be telling other people about the Lord Jesus. Well, Psalm 127 would nuance that a little bit by having us pray as we do that house-building work. Whether that's a brief prayer as we're about to have a conversation with a friend or a family member about Jesus, please, Lord, give me clarity as I speak to this person about you. Or whether, perhaps even now, we might be beginning to pray for family and friends whom we might invite to Christmas events here through December. That we would invite people to come, but humbly depend on God to bring whom he will and to do what he will in their lives. So we can do that as individuals, can't we? And we can do it too as a church family. As we gather together to pray, whether at our, our monthly midweek prayer meeting. Or our monthly Sunday evening prayer time next Sunday. It is a wonderful thing to gather together and to express a humble dependence on God for all sorts of different needs. Not least for our desire that people would hear about the Lord Jesus and turn to him. And says Psalm 127, it's not just a wonderful thing. 
it's an absolutely essential thing. Because you see, unless the Lord builds the house, this house, those who labor, labor in vain. Let's ask him for his help to rely on him as we each look to build this house together now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come before you this evening and acknowledge our creatureliness. Acknowledge that we are limited and that we have every evidence of our own limitations. And we acknowledge too that you are not creaturely. You are the creator, the sustainer of all things. And so we ask that you would please, by your Holy Spirit, bring each person in this room to humbly depend on you. Whether in that general sense, acknowledging the limits of our own efforts, or being willing to rest and to trust you as the one who ultimately provides. Or in a specific way, as we look to build your house here at Hebron, would you please make us ever more reliant on you, day by day, week by week, month by month, that we would bring our requests before you in prayer, humbly depending on you to build the house. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.